Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Lily Jamali. We begin in Los Angeles, where a judge yesterday overturned that county's ban on outdoor dining, at least on paper. In a tentative ruling, the judge called the ban an arbitrary way to control the coronavirus, adding that L.A. County public health officials failed to balance health risks against potential harm to the economy. But the tentative ruling doesn't mean restaurants in L.A. can serve outside again. As KQED science reporter Kevin Stark explains, the state is holding the line on the closures and others like it. On Tuesday, a judge sided with restaurant groups in a ruling that found Los Angeles didn't provide enough evidence to justify a local order preventing restaurants from serving customers outside. Lawmakers, parents, and some health experts have questioned the science behind closing outdoor playgrounds to slow the spread of the coronavirus. Dr. Mark Galley, the state's top health official, defended California's new regional shutdown order. We do this for a short period of time and that we look forward to moving beyond the surge, having that industry and many other sectors reopen for business. Galley said the state's stricter order is not about the relative safety of eating outside or playing on a swing set. The coronavirus is spreading so rapidly that he said every non-essential activity is risky. For the California Report, I'm Kevin Stark. The California Report's Mary Franklin Harvin has been digging into the controversy over outdoor dining and the people on both sides of that debate. She joins me now. Hi, Mary Franklin. Hey, Lily. So I got a hold of Farley Elliott. He's a senior editor at Eater LA, and he's a food journalist, not a restaurant critic. And the first thing I wanted to know from him is who's behind the suit? So the suit is being brought by the California Restaurant Association, as well as a gentleman who owns a restaurant in downtown Los Angeles called Engine Company Number 28. And their argument essentially is that there is no clear data link that shows a uh, restaurants as a contributing factor in the rise of COVID-19 cases. And uh, frankly, I, they have a point. Our contact tracing for the state is not robust enough to be able to definitively say, yes, this person ate here, contracted COVID-19 and then spread it to X number of other people. The reality is it's a much more messy bit of data. We don't require people walking into restaurants to leave a name and phone number and previous contact list. And so when you have 10 million people, 31,000 restaurants, that data truly doesn't exist. What does exist is a bunch of data that says people mixing out in the public in uh, groups that are larger than their own household and not wearing masks are a significantly higher risk. So Farley, just to clarify, the ruling that's been passed down basically says that the L.A. County Department of Public Health didn't provide enough support to justify banning outdoor dining in the county. But as of now, the state stay-at-home order still trumps everything. So this decision is only relevant after that's lifted? The state 
stay-at-home order as implemented because we fell below 15% of ICU bed capacity is going to last through December 28. And that closes outdoor on-site dining at all restaurants in 11 counties that are grouped together to be Southern California. So that's everywhere from Mono County, San Luis Obispo County, Orange, LA, Riverside, everybody around us. And essentially, those restaurants are mandated by the state to close outdoor dining. It doesn't matter what the LA County Department of Public Health says. And frankly, it doesn't matter what the judge says about reinstating that. Um, it's going to remain closed until the state, which is the law of the land in this case, says otherwise. But the judge and the uh, California Restaurant Association, they're arguing essentially that because it is so detrimental to the economic well-being of a huge sector of the LA County population, they do need to be more specific in their causing, in their like causal data relationship in order to make this claim. Otherwise, once the stay-at-home order releases from the state, we're going to allow outdoor dining again. And it occurs to me that banning outdoor dining right now probably has a much deeper impact on LA County, a place where people can, for the most part, easily eat outdoors year-round, as opposed to lots of places in Northern California, where it's definitely not as comfortable to sit outside in the wintertime. You know, this is a county that uh, has always embraced eating outdoors. It is historic. It is endemic to our nature. It is in our DNA. And the idea that it is not allowed now, that street food is still largely criminalized as a result, that sort of stuff really matters to us and has far-reaching and long-lasting effects for food deserts and people being able to eat food that matters to them in their own communities at a price point that works for them. And once you start to lose that, it becomes really, really problematic. And people start to ask themselves, rightfully so, if these places are not essential, then what is? Do I need to save the target in my neighborhood when the person I've been eating food from for my entire life goes away? Farley Elliott is senior editor of Eater LA. Thanks so much for making time for us. I appreciate you having me on. All right. And you can find Farley's coverage of the outdoor dining ban and more at la.eater.com. New research estimates that the 2018 California wildfires led to thousands of deaths, many more than the official count. That larger number factors in the harm of air pollution. From KQED, Danielle Venton reports on a new study on the comprehensive cost of wildfires. Disasters, including the car and campfires, directly killed 106 people two years ago. An international group of scientists now estimate toxic smoke contributed to the deaths of another 3,600. I think a problem historically is that we've been counting what's easiest to count. UC Irvine researcher Stephen Davis is one of the authors. You know, the numbers of buildings destroyed or the people that were literally, uh, you know, killed in a fire because they were, you know, in a building that burned. It's a lot harder to follow, you know, the tendrils of literally uh, smoke or uh, the economic damages that permeate throughout the, the global economy. Davis and his colleagues used a model developed by the EPA, with input from air sensors to satellite data, to calculate the broad health impacts. They also tracked how industries were affected by fires and how that disrupted the economies of counties, the state, nation, and world. Researchers put the financial cost for the 2018 fires at nearly $150 billion. That's six times the official estimate, which only counts destroyed and damaged property. Calculating a disaster footprint like this is complicated, but Davis says the way we do things now doesn't give an accurate picture. It's very easy to understand the costs of moving away from fossil fuels 
it's a lot harder to understand what are the benefits of that because they're so diffuse. This approach, he says, can help governments, business, and the public better understand the real cost of climate-driven disasters like wildfires and the economic benefits of addressing climate change. For The California Report, I'm Danielle Venton. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of The California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. We're going to turn now to the pandemic. L.A. area State Senator Henry Stern has introduced legislation that would require California employers to develop coronavirus contact tracing programs for their workers. All employees who test positive would need to report it to their bosses. Stern says it's a way to protect essential workers from having to blindly trust that no one they work with has the virus. I really think that We've got to just elevate a tough conversation in this state and, frankly, in this whole country about whether you really do have a right to privacy when it comes to being infected with COVID. I mean, is that your right to conceal a positive COVID test result and enter into your workplace? The state currently requires employers to provide no-cost testing to workers thought to be exposed to the virus while in the workplace. They must also bar employees who might have been exposed to COVID from showing up to work. Well, four men who were set to be released from California prisons but were instead handed over to federal immigration authorities earlier this year are seeking thousands of dollars in damages from the state. KQED's Farida Jabala Romero has more. The ACLU and Asian Law Caucus in San Francisco filed the claims with the state seeking over $25,000 for each of the four former inmates. The claimants include an American citizen who should have never been detained by U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Another is a father of two who got seriously ill with COVID-19 after he was locked up by ICE. Attorney Vasuda Tala with the ACLU says the governor and the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, or CDCR, are knowingly putting people at risk instead of releasing them at the end of their sentences. They are instead transferring them to ICE facilities where the governor and CDCR officials know that the conditions are so terrible 
that they are very likely to contract COVID and suffer serious complications. And their continuing to transfer people despite having that knowledge is unconstitutional. She says the ultimate goal is to get the state to stop transferring people from prisons to ICE. And filing these claims can be the first step toward a lawsuit against the state. Nearly 25,000 people in California prisons have tested positive for the coronavirus, and almost 8,000 ICE detainees nationwide have been diagnosed. A CDCR spokeswoman says the agency cooperates with law enforcement agencies to protect public safety, but it can't comment on the pending claims. The governor's office did not immediately respond to a request for comment. For the California Report, I'm Farida Javala Romero. This week, the city of Fresno named its next police chief. And when he's sworn in next year, Paco Balderrama will make history as the first Latino to helm the department. Valley Public Radio's Mari Bolaños reports. Paco Balderrama says he was surprised to learn he will be the first Hispanic police chief, given Fresno is about half Latino. I am who I am, but I also represent not just my family, I represent the Hispanic community, and that's something that I take very, very seriously, and it's and it's, it's humbling to me. Balderrama says he wants to work to improve the relationship between Fresno residents and the police department. When he steps into office on January 11th, he says his main priorities will be community trust and safety. I really think that uh, through professionalism, accountability, transparency, and community engagement, uh, we can get those things done. So I'm very happy to be here. I thank you, uh, Fresno community, for, uh, for welcoming me. Before being selected as Fresno's 22nd police chief, Balderrama served as one of four deputy chiefs for the Oklahoma City Police Department. In his new role, he will also be a member of a task force assigned to consider recommendations from a recent Fresno Police Reform Commission report. For the California Report, I'm Madi Bolaños in Fresno. To the state capitol now, where California lawmakers have introduced a new bill calling on the state to declare racism a public health crisis. KQED's health correspondent April Domboski explains the bill is big on goals, but short on details at the moment. Lots of studies show racism is a root cause of health disparities. Discriminatory housing policies have led to higher rates of asthma in communities of color. Implicit bias among doctors contributes to Black women being three times as likely to die after giving birth than white women. State Senator Dr. Richard Pan wants the legislature to tackle this. First, by making sure the other laws they pass don't make the problems worse. Well, this has been going on for a very, very long time. It's not acceptable that we continue to just perpetuate this. Pan admits there are a lot of details to fill in on the how. Over the next few months, he says he'll keep an eye on the state budget and will consult with experts to help flesh out a bill that he says can pass and will make a difference. For The California Report, I'm April Domboski. And that is The California Report for this Wednesday, December 9th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Lily Jamali. Have a great one. Support for The California Report comes from Stanford Medicine, protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash AdaptingCare. The law firm Perkins Coie, a trusted legal advisor to innovative companies and industry leaders throughout California and the world. Learn more at PerkinsCoie.com. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, 
focused on finding exceptional people and helping them do more for others together on the web at schmidtfutures.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.